0: Good morning church, good to see you all this morning, we're going to study God's Word together so if you would open your Bible to Esther chapter 6. All right, so Esther chapter 6, if you're there I'm going to start reading and I'll read this whole chapter and then we'll dive in and get to work. Esther 6 verse 1, that night sleep escaped the king so he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus is Xerxes, so he goes by both names. History knows him a little bit better by Xerxes. But that's the same guy. Verse 3, the king inquired, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. The king asked, who was in the court? Now, Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. So this is just dripping with irony at this point. The timing is is very interesting. Verse 5, the king's attendants answered him, Haman is there, standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered, and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, Who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, For the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor and parade him on the horse through the city square and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything You have suggested your plan is perfect. Do all of that stuff for Mordecai. Verse 11, so Haman took the garment and the horse through his teeth, right? He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered. Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. So my wife, Paula, and I were about a year into our marriage when I noticed something about her dad, um, and it's the, I just said, babe, your, your dad will watch the same classic Western like 20 or 30 times, and he literally grins the entire time. I mean, I've watched him watch this scene, this scene in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly 30 times, and he's just grinning from ear to ear and so much so that sometimes he'll even turn the sound down which doesn't help because paula's mom is legally blind so she'll say like pete so i can't hear the words and i can't see the tv right so sometimes i've affectionately referred to paula's parents as hear no evil see no evil um But the thing is, she just, he just grins through the whole thing. Now, Paula did really pick up her dad's love for classic Westerns. But if you want to see my wife grin from ear to ear, watching a scene from a movie she's seen 20 or 30 times, cue up the last 10 minutes of a movie called While You Were Sleeping. And we have seen the end of this movie so many times. And she just beaming right you know like half of us aren't even watching the movie anymore we're just watching paula right she's just enjoying it beaming ear to ear and we know everything that's going to happen we know about the whole you know the the awkward bridal procession to the front and then the moment where she makes this really awkward admission and confession that i was never actually engaged to peter and i've always loved jack and i I love your son and he said what uh Yeah, I know you love your son. No, not that one, but that one, right? So the whole thing plays out, and then they end up at this proposal moment in a phone booth. And if I'm spoiling it for you, you've had 25 years to watch this movie, right? So the proposal in the, the phone, the toll booth there, and then they end up on a train, and they're embracing, and the train pulls off, and there's the money line at the end of the movie, and it's this. Sandra Bullock's character says this, Peter once asked me when it was that I fell in love with Jack. And I told him, it was while you were sleeping. And it's a great line because everything in the, ha- in the story happens in turns on Peter being asleep. You know, actually the Bible talks a lot about rest and it even talks about sleep. So for example, I won't be exhaustive here, but Psalm chapter three where David says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again for the Lord sustains me. And then you fast forward, there are a number of other places in the Psalms. Psalm 62, where David tells his soul, find rest, my soul, in God alone. And then you fast forward again to Psalm 127, where it says, it's vain to rise early and stay awake all hours of the night and burn the candle at both ends because you're eating the bread of anxious toil and God gives his beloved sleep. It's the gift of God is the gift of rest and the gift of sleep. And then you fast forward and you see Jesus come in the fullness of time and there he is and he extends his arms out to the world and he says, come to me all who are what? Weary and heavy laden. And he says, and I will give you rest. My gift to the world, rest. Right, we come to Esther chapter six, and the empire is asleep. The heroes are asleep. Esther and Mordecai are asleep, but in this strange twist of providence, the king can't sleep. So this unfolds in a few different steps. We see in verse one that there's no rest for the king. There's no rest for the king. When you back up and you take this in, in the big picture, it goes kind of like this. Chapter six is Mordecai and Esther go to sleep, and God, goes to work the heroes go to sleep israel's heroes go to sleep and god goes to work you know proverbs 21 you might be familiar with proverbs 21 verse 1 because it tells us something about god's ability to interact with with those in high positions of authority in the world and it says the king's heart is in the hand of the lord and like rivers of water he turns it wherever he wants to he can turn the heart of a king in whatever direction He wants to, well, turns out that even though Proverbs 21 tells us the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, Esther 6 tells us the king's sleep is also in the hand of the Lord because this God of providence is quietly propping open the eyelids of the king of the world, Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. Verse 1, you see those words there? That night sleep escaped the king. He's in Susa and he can't sleep. He's sleepless in Susa. It's just kind of a, yeah, that's interesting. So what does he do, right? He can't sleep, and he says, somebody bring me something and read me something. Go down into the file cabinet down there and read me the minutes of all the cabinet meetings, and maybe that'll help. So somebody's going to go find that file drawer down there and open this book of all the minutes of the cabinet meetings and read it to him so that the king can try to get some sleep, right? Well, we know because we've read Esther chapter 2 what's in that file cabinet that somebody made a record years ago, by this point, it's been years ago, but somebody made a record of something Mordecai did, a good thing that Mordecai did that went unrewarded. Nobody noticed, but Mordecai saved the king's life because there were two eunuchs and Mordecai happened to be in the right place at the right time and he overheard those two eunuchs talking about their plot to assassinate the king and he gave intel to the people who needed the intel and the whole plot was exposed. Right, and then you see in chapter 2, verse 23, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. So Mordecai reports that incident, and when the report was investigated and verified, both men, the would-be assassins of Xerxes, were hanged on the gallows, and this event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. So we know Mordecai's good deed, noble deed, virtuous deed was recorded, but it wasn't rewarded and it's been sitting in a file cabinet for several years by this point just gathering dust but tonight it's time for that file to come out of the file cabinet and be read because that report has arrived and emerged for such a time as this, it's an intentional thing. God's hand is in the glove of history. Remember, that, that's our working definition of providence, is, is providence is God's hand in the glove of history. It's not the fireworks, it's not the pyrotechnics, it's not Red Sea partings, right, and, and water being turned to blood. It's no, there's nobody walking on water in the book of Esther. It's God working in the very ordinary things, propping open the eyes of the king of the world. He's working through very ordinary things. That's the book of Esther, right? The the great hymn writer, William Cooper, he wrote a number of famous hymns that the church still sings to this day. There is a fountain filled with blood, you may know that one. There's another one that's maybe a little bit less known. I certainly didn't hear it until I was well into my 20s. I was completely unfamiliar with the song God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And the first stanza of that song is God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And that's Esther. The reason we can't track God's footsteps is because he has planted his footsteps in the sea where they are invisible to the human eye, but they are there nonetheless, and he is walking through the pages, planting his footsteps under the water. The king says, I can't sleep somebody help me please, read something to me, go get that file and they come back with the book recording daily events and what page, right? That's gotta be a massive file of daily events in the 127 provinces that he oversees in two million square miles of territory. Massive book, right? Probably books So they grab one of them and they just flip open, guess where? <laughs> to the story we read in Esther chapter two. So we see in our passage, verse 2, they found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Big Thana and Teresh. I'm betting everything they called those people Biggie and Terry, right? So the Biggie and Terry's plan got foiled. Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus, and the king inquired what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act and that question you just think about it that question bodes very well that question suggests a change in the wind right because this was a secret virtuous act that went unrewarded. and if Mordecai happened to be awake he's asleep but if he were awake and if he were a fly on the wall he'd be very encouraged by the question the king just asked because the king says what did we give that guy he saved my life We reward people for stuff like that, right? And you just think about that. It behooves the kingdom of a dictator, doesn't it? When somebody does something loyal, you want everybody in the empire to know about it because it will generate more acts of loyalty. People who do loyal things for the king get publicly honored, get blessed. Right and people who do disloyal things, they get publicly shamed, and so that has a way of warning the public to not be disloyal. So it's in Xerxes' best interest, it is in the interest of the security of our empire for us to make sure that guy's name is on something in our city. How much was his raise that year? Where is he working now in the citadel? And and their answer to the question is, He didn't get anything. Not even a cost of living increase. The man didn't get anything for saving the life of your king. You know, you think about it. Um, Sometimes a believer's vindication doesn't wait until the believer's death. Sometimes it comes on Thursday. And that's kind of what happens here. His vindication comes early and, and God loves to do that at times in our lives as we faithfully follow him because he wants to give you and me a peak and the world that's watching a peak of the kingdom that's coming, the, the kingdom that's marked by the age to come, right? So that it spills over and you see a glimpse of the kingdom God is gonna set up in the new creation where private integrity is publicly honored. And that's what they're gonna see when Mordecai is paraded through the streets, right? Here in Esther chapter six, what's going on? Mordecai is sleeping and God is preparing his vindication and it won't even wait till Thursday. It's coming tomorrow. You're gonna wake up and it's gonna be a whole new day for you, Mordecai. You're gonna be wearing clothes you never imagined you'd be wearing. His vindication shows up. What do we learn about the Christian life? The rhythm of the Christian life is sowing, then sleeping. I say sowing than sleeping because the reaping is in God's hands, right? We we don't control the harvest. We don't control the outcome. The harvest is in God's hands. If I could just stop here and just talk to those of you who have served Jesus on the field of mission. And maybe, you know, you come back in your stateside. And there's perhaps a sense of discouragement. You know, we we invested so much of our lives, we went all in. We shared the gospel, we met people, we prayed so hard and yet we saw so little yield. So few people come to faith And Jesus. Friends, if you have served on the field and you have seen little fruit, you've been faithful. You sowed while you worked, you worked while it was day and there's a time to rest and trust God with outcomes. You've been faithful. You've done exactly what you were supposed to do and Sabbath is exactly what you should do now. It's just as important as our labor. You think about the yield of the seeds that we faithfully sow in parenting. How much of that yield are we going to see in our life? Who knows? There's no guarantee we're gonna see a certain necessary yield. So what do we do? Keep sowing. And when it's time to go to bed, get some rest. (laughs) Because God can work while you're sleeping. God is not at rest. God does not slumber or sleep. You know, Jesus talked about his kingdom in this way. He says in Mark chapter 4, verse 26, the kingdom of God is like this, he said, a man scatters seed on the ground, he sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how? is the mystery of what happens in the farmer's life when the farmer goes to sleep. The farmer's got a work day in front of him and he sows the seed as broadly as he possibly can and then he goes to bed and he wakes up and maybe there's fruit and he says, where'd all this come from? Because at night, God was working, God was bringing forth the yield, right? Mordecai and Esther, they have not been passive They've been active, they have sowed, they have spoken up, they have been faithful to work while it's day. Chapter 5, they talked when it was time to talk. They, they got in there, they, they risked, they invested, they sacrificed. And then this theology of rest informs them that you're going to have to sleep at some point. You know that? Esther, Mordecai, you were faithful today. Put your head on the pillow and go to bed. Let's see what God does tomorrow morning. It's time to rest. And while they're sleeping, God is working And how is God working? In one way, ironically, he's keeping a couple of other people awake with him. This is the strangest lock-in in in world history. God on high, Xerxes and Haman are gonna be up. They're gonna pull an all-nighter together, the three of them, and he's keeping all three of these awake. No rest for the king, no rest for the wicked. So two people were up all night with God, the king and Haman. And we know what Haman was doing, right? He was, uh, he was building the gallows. His wife and friends said, here's what you do with the Mordecai problem, you build a gallows. And you build it nice and high so everybody sees the most foolish man in the world hanging high tomorrow. You build that gallows tonight. You get permission in the morning from the king. You tell the king we got a problem person. You don't even have to name him. Tell the king you got a problem person. What did he do last time? Signet ring. Go do what you need to do, right? that's, That's how this played out last time. So he is... Thrilled, he stays awake all night, he's supervising the project, the gallows go up 75, you talk about extra, 75 feet tall gallows and it's all done and you can imagine the sense of haste and eagerness as Haman is on his way to the palace. Right, you back up into chapter five and you find out how did all this happen, right? Well, Esther had an opportunity and some of us were wanting to yell at Esther and say, you don't know what we know because if you don't talk to the king tonight about what Haman has done, Mordecai's gonna die in the morning. She doesn't know that. She doesn't know there's a threat looming over Mordecai's head when when she determines for whatever reasons in the providence of God, she determines tonight's not the night. I don't think I'm supposed to do this tonight. Let's call another night. I called Haman and the king here tonight. We had a wonderful meal. And then I asked them, can we come back tomorrow night and I wanna do this again. And what does Haman do at the end of chapter five? Haman leaves that party at Esther's place. And he is bragging to his friends. I mean, it's late at night and he calls. Zeresh, come in here. Bring all our friends over here. And I'm going to tell them all the things that I experienced. How verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11, look down. How the king honored him and promoted him in rank over everybody. And then chapter 5, verse 12. And Queen Esther invited, you see those words, no one but me to join the king. And she wants me of all people to come back tomorrow night and the story again it's written with satire satire is humor with an edge it is it is humor that exposes foolishness because there right after he's telling them how great and awesome he is to get to be invited in such places and rub shoulders with such people he moves from bragging to whining and he's like Mordecai is living rent-free in this man's mind, right? And Mordecai's just ruining his day. And he says, if I could just get rid of Mordecai. And they said, well, do it, do it. Stay awake tonight, get yourself a construction crew, build the gallows and get permission to finish him in the morning. And that's what they did all night. Haman was awake all night. And so first thing in the morning, eager beaver, he is walking to the palace, he is whistling on his way to the palace, another one bites the dust is probably the song that he's whistling on his way to the palace, and the, but the timing doesn't favor him. <laughs> Let's say it's five minutes to seven as he's whistling his way to the palace. Well, at six minutes to seven, we hear what's going on inside the room with the king and the king says, what honor has been given to Mordecai for this act? Six minutes before seven, they say, nothing has been done for him. And that's when they hear just outside at five minutes to seven, you hear somebody whistling outside the window. And what does the king say inside? He says, who's in the court? (laughs) It's just delicious irony, right? The king asked who's in the court and look down verse four. Haman was just entering the outer court to the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. So they say, it's Haman who's outside. And the king says, basically, perfect. Haman's thrown me great parties. So Haman's gonna be able to come up with a great plan to throw a party for the one the king wants to honor. And even the way that the question is worded is providential, isn't it? Look at verse five. Haman what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? And Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? So now he has an opportunity, doesn't he? he, he would, Haman would not be so audacious to say, so king, here's what I think you should do for me. Take your crown off and put it on me. Take the king's robes from the king's master closet Put them on me. Give me the king's horse. Ride me through the city and have one of your noble officials sing my praises down all the streets in Susa. But no, since this is hypothetical, Haman can say, okay, well, hypothetically, I think this is what you should do. If you want to really do do it up to the nines, here's what you would do. Look at verse (laughs) 8. Have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. Parade him on the horse through the city square and call out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Verse 10 the king told Haman, notice the language, how long it takes to get to the name. Hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> I mean, the air has just been sucked out of the room, right? Do all of that for Mordecai the Jew. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. And what do we learn? We learned something here about the madness of self-exaltation. The insanity of self exaltation. You know, throughout this whole story in the book of Esther, Haman stands as a hyperlink, right? He is a representation, the embodiment of those who defy the Lord and his people. That's Haman. He is a living, breathing representation of the ones who oppose God and his people. You know, we sing a song here at Brook Hills that asks a number of questions and then it provides the answer at the end and and the questions that it asks are pretty awesome. Who else commands all the host of heaven? Who else can make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? And then the answer comes, only a holy God. Haman didn't get the memo. Haman never sang the song. Haman never heard the song. Haman never met the Holy One, but he's about to. Because God is working providentially, sliding his hand into the glove of history. You know, the Old Testament, without, without removing any of the wonders of God's mercy that pop in the Old Testament as well, the Old Testament has this beautiful way of getting a message across which the, the ancient believers just considered to be wisdom 101 and what was wisdom 101 in the Old Testament? It is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A wise life is on your knees before the Lord in humility before the Lord. A stupid life is exalting yourself in the presence of God and thinking that you can dance with him Haman's sleepless night is a powerful statement about the futility of denying the Lord, dismissing the Lord, rejecting the Lord, opposing the Lord. We see the madness of self-exaltation. And then there's this incredible reversal, right? Because after Haman says, if the king, if you wanna do this right, here's six things, he's got this ready list. It's almost like he had already imagined, you know, if the king ever asks, these are the six things that I want the most. He's got this list of six things. If you really want to do this right, king, do these six things, and then the king says, don't leave out anything. All six things, do it for Mordecai. And then look at verse 11. The surprising reversal. So Haman took the garment and the horse. Haman clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor Mordecai looked so different just yesterday. The difference one night of sleep made in this man's life. He looked so humble. He looked so impoverished. He looked so helpless just yesterday. And how different he looks today. He's got the king's crown. He's got the king's robe. He's riding the king's horse. And somebody's at, he's being paraded through the streets. As he's paraded through the streets, even his enemies, Mordecai's enemies, have to publicly acknowledge at repeated intervals, behold the one in whom the king is pleased. Doesn't that hearken to something that we'll read in the future further on into the pages of the Bible, right, where where history is running, history is running to this moment that's described in Philippians chapter two where the one who humbled himself is now highly exalted and every knee bows in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confesses. It's not just the world genuflecting paying homage to the greatness of God. It is the world saying it. Every tongue will confess, some through their teeth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the one with whom the king is well pleased. You know, everywhere we look in scripture, something reminds us that the gospel is true. All of it. Something reminds us that our relationship with God was broken back there somewhere. Something went terribly wrong back there and and we were separated. Humanity was separated from a holy God and there was only one way back and the way was provided by God sending a mediator, his own son, the eternal son of God who became man. Jesus Christ enters this world and he is rejected and humiliated and then he goes to the cross and he hangs on the cross in our place and then he rises again again from the dead but the king in his incarnation he laid aside his privileges he didn't look like much but check him out after his resurrection no rest for the king no rest for the wicked third and the God who gives us rest Esther 6 in a sentence might go something like this Esther and Mordecai go to sleep and God goes to work I almost titled this message, God of the Night Shift, because God takes the night shift. He says, y'all go to bed, I'm going to stay up a while, and I'm going to keep a couple of people up with me. And it's going to make all the difference when you wake up tomorrow morning, because I'm going to do a lot of stuff tonight while you're sleeping. While the heroes are out cold, I'm going to do something amazing. The winds are going to change. Last week, Pastor Nate Farrow, uh, he quoted from Psalm 121, and, and that text is so fitting and appropriate again here this morning because we learned something about God in Psalm 121 and it's this, Psalm 121 verse 3 and 4, he, God, will not allow your foot to slip, your protector will not slumber, so he won't slumber, indeed the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. What's the upshot of Esther 6 when it lands in the heart and soul of someone who follows Jesus. It's basically this Christian friend here in the room this morning, you can rest. God is awake. You can rest. God will stay awake. The protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. You think about it. The book of Esther, it's a story that was memorized by the people of God over the centuries. I mean, they told this story verbatim, these exact words with all their satire-laden detail. It was told just this way, with groggers and shakers and boos and hisses and Haman's triangular ears represented in the cookies that they ate every year at the Feast of Purim, right? The whole thing, they did it up. They did not want to forget all all the glorious, wonderful stuff that's going on in this story and what was the effect it was meant to have on God's people, and I think the effect is this. In essence, the book of Esther as a whole is a metaphorical bedtime story. It is God saying to his people, lay down, lay down, and as they drift off to sleep, God is telling them about the night he stayed awake and made the two most powerful people in the world stay awake with him and all the outcomes were changed by seven o'clock the next morning. What a difference a night makes, right? Who, who could have predicted these outcomes last night at 10 o'clock when Haman is boasting, throwing his weight around saying, the, yes, the, the queen wants me back tomorrow night, right? And his brag fest and his construction project and all that's going on just last night. And then who could have predicted that that same Haman would dress Mordecai up, would, would carry him down the streets and sing Mordecai's honor in the city square. Nobody's laying odds that that's ever going to happen just last night, but that whole thing turned while they were sleeping. Who could have predicted that the very people who told Haman to build the gallows, his wife and the friends, build the gallows, take care of your problem, you'd be, you'd be dead by morning, Take care of your problem. Who could have predicted those very people? Look at the end of our passage in verse 13, chapter 6. Those same people, Zeresh and the friends, would say these words. Haman, you've begun to fall before him. You won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. (laughs) While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared doesn't that language of here come the eunuchs and they sweep him away doesn't it suggest to us that Haman's no longer calling the shots two eunuchs came and bundled him away and he looked pretty sour bundled him away to the feast he was super excited about last night but he doesn't look excited anymore because the winds have changed You know, what's the announcement of the Advent hymn about the effect of the incarnation on those who believe? It says, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. Earlier I mentioned Psalm three and Psalm 62 and Psalm 127, you can throw Psalm 92 in there, a number of other Psalms as well, but in Psalm 62 I love it because David is telling his soul, he is preaching the gospel to himself. And he is saying, find rest, my soul, in God alone. Basically what he's saying is, soul, the time to find rest is now, and the place it's found is in God alone. Get your rest and get it in God, because that's the only place you can find it. He is notifying his soul of where rest is found. And I think in a sense, Esther 6 dramatizes Psalm 62. And it becomes the application for us as believers. Christian friend, don't underestimate the wonderful things God can do while you're sleeping, while you're waiting, while you're resting. Let's, let's find, actively, let's find rest this week. And let's find it in God alone. Good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. We're gonna study God's word together. So if you would open your Bible to Esther chapter six. All right, so Esther chapter six. If you're there, I'm gonna start reading and I'll I'll read this whole chapter and then we'll dive in and get to work. Esther six, verse one. That night, sleep escaped the king. So he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus is Xerxes, so he goes by both names. History knows him a little bit better by Xerxes. But that's the same guy. Verse 3, the king inquired, What honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, Nothing has been done for him. The king asked, Who was in the court? Now, Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. So this is just dripping with irony at this point. The timing is is very interesting. Verse 5, the king's attendants answered him, Haman is there, standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered, and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, Who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, For the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor and parade him on the horse through the city square and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything You have suggested your plan is perfect. Do all of that stuff for Mordecai. Verse 11, so Haman took the garment and the horse through his teeth, right? He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home mournful and with his head covered. Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. So my wife Paula and I were about a year into our marriage when I noticed something about her dad. Um, and it's the, I just said, babe, your, your dad will watch the same classic Western like 20 or 30 times, and he literally grins the entire time. I mean, I've watched him watch this scene, this scene in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly 30 times, and he just grinning from ear to ear and so much so that sometimes he'll even turn the sound down which doesn't help because paula's mom is legally blind so she'll say like pete so i can't hear the words and i can't see the tv right so sometimes i've affectionately referred to paula's parents as hear no evil see no evil Um, but the thing is, she just, he just grins through the whole thing. Now, Paula did not really pick up her dad's love for classic Westerns. But if you want to see my wife grin from ear to ear, watching a scene from a movie she's seen 20 or 30 times, cue up the last 10 minutes of a movie called While You Were Sleeping. And we have seen the end of this movie so many times. And she just beaming, right? You know, like half of us aren't even watching the movie anymore. We're just watching Paula, right? She's just enjoying it beaming ear to ear and we know everything that's going to happen. We know about the whole, you know, the, the awkward bridal procession to the front and then the moment where she makes this really awkward admission and confession that I was never actually engaged to Peter and I've always loved Jack and I, I love your son and he said, uh, what? Yeah, I know you love your son. No, not that one, but that one, right? So the whole thing plays out, and then they end up at this proposal moment in a phone booth. And if I'm spoiling it for you, you've had 25 years to watch this movie, right? So the proposal in the, the phone, the toll booth there, and then they end up on a train, and they're embracing, and the train pulls off, and there's the money line at the end of the movie, and it's this. Sandra Bullock's character says this, Peter once asked me when it was that I fell in love with Jack. And I told him, it was while you were sleeping. And it's a great line, because everything in the, ha- in the story happens in turns on Peter being asleep. You know, actually the Bible talks a lot about rest, and it even talks about sleep. So for example, I won't be exhaustive here, but Psalm chapter three, where David says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again for the Lord sustains me. And then you fast forward, there are a number of other places in the Psalms. Psalm 62, where David tells his soul, find rest, my soul, in God alone. And then you fast forward again to Psalm 127, where it says, it's vain to rise early and stay awake all hours of the night and burn the candle at both ends because you're eating the bread of anxious toil and God gives his beloved sleep. It's the gift of God is the gift of rest and the gift of sleep. And then you fast forward and you see Jesus come in the fullness of time and there he is and he extends his arms out to the world and he says, come to me all who are what? Weary and heavy laden. And he says, and I will give you rest. My gift to the world, rest. Right, we come to Esther chapter six and the empire is asleep. The heroes are asleep. Esther and Mordecai are asleep, but in this strange twist of providence, the king can't sleep. So this unfolds in a few different steps. We see in verse one that there's no rest for the king. There's no rest for the king. When you back up and you take this in, in the big picture, it goes kind of like this. Chapter six is Mordecai and Esther go to sleep, and God goes to work. The heroes go to sleep, Israel's heroes go to sleep, and God goes to work. You know, Proverbs 21, you might be familiar with Proverbs 21, verse 1, because it tells us something about God's ability to interact with with those in high positions of authority in the world, and it says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wants to. He can turn the heart of a king in whatever direction he wants to. Well, it turns out that even though Proverbs 21 tells us the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, Esther 6 tells us the king's sleep is also in the hand of the Lord because this God of providence is quietly propping open the eyelids of the king of the world, Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. Verse 1, you see those words there? That night, sleep escaped the king. He's in Susa and he can't sleep. He, he's sleepless in Susa. Which is kind of a, yeah, that's interesting. So what does he do, right? He can't sleep and he says, somebody bring me something and read me something. Go down into the file cabinet down there and read me the minutes of all the cabinet meetings and maybe that'll help. So somebody's going to go find that file drawer down there and open this book of all the minutes of the cabinet meetings and read it to him so that the king can try to get some sleep, right? Well, we know because we've read Esther chapter two, what's in that file cabinet that somebody made a record years ago. By this point, it's been years ago, but somebody made a record of something Mordecai did, a good thing that Mordecai did that went unrewarded. Nobody noticed, but Mordecai saved the king's life because there were two eunuchs and Mordecai happened to be in the right place at the right time and he overheard those two eunuchs talking about their plot to assassinate the king and he gave intel to the people who needed the intel and the whole plot was exposed, right? And then you see in chapter two, verse. Verse 23, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. So Mordecai reports that incident. And when the report was investigated and verified, both men, the would-be assassins of Xerxes, were hanged on the gallows. And this event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. So we know Mordecai's good deed, noble deed, virtuous deed was recorded, but it wasn't rewarded and it's been sitting in a file cabinet for several years by this point, just gathering dust. But tonight, it's time for that file to come out of the file cabinet and be read because that report has arrived and emerged for such a time as this, it's an intentional thing. God's hand is in the glove of history. Remember, that, that's our working definition of providence, is, is providence is God's hand in the glove of history. It's not the fireworks, it's not the pyrotechnics, it's not Red Sea partings, right, and, and water being turned to blood. It's no, there's nobody walking on water in the book of Esther. It's God working in the very ordinary things, propping open the eyes of the king of the world. He's working through very ordinary things. That's the book of Esther, right? The the great hymn writer, William Cooper, he wrote a number of famous hymns that the church still sings to this day. There is a fountain filled with blood, you may know that one. There's another one that's maybe a little bit less known. I certainly didn't hear it until I was well into my 20s. I was completely unfamiliar with the song God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And the first stanza of that song is God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And that's Esther. The reason we can't track God's footsteps is because he has planted his footsteps in the sea where they are invisible to the human eye, but they are there nonetheless, and he is walking through the pages, planting his footsteps under the water. The king says, I can't sleep Somebody help me, please read something to me. Go get that file. And they come back with the book recording daily events and what page, right? That's got to be a massive file of daily events in the 127 provinces that he oversees in 2 million square miles of territory. Massive book, right? Man, probably books. So they grab one of them and they just flip open, guess where? <laughs> to the story we read in Esther chapter 2, So we see in our passage, verse two, they found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Big Thana and Teresh. I'm betting everything they called those people Biggie and Terry. Right, so the Biggie and Terry's plan got foiled. Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus and the king inquired what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act and that question you just think about it that question bodes very well that question suggests a change in the wind right because this was a secret virtuous act that went unrewarded and if Mordecai happened to be awake he's asleep but if he were awake and if he were a fly on the wall he'd be very encouraged by the question the king just asked because the king says what did we give that guy he saved my life We reward people for stuff like that, right? And you just think about that. It behooves the kingdom of a dictator, doesn't it? When somebody does something loyal, you want everybody in the empire to know about it because it will generate more acts of loyalty. People who do loyal things for the king get publicly honored, get blessed. Right, And people who do disloyal things, they get publicly shamed. And so that has a way of warning the public to not be disloyal. So it's in Xerxes' best interest. It is in the interest of the security of our empire for us to make sure that guy's name is on something in our city. How much was his raise that year? Where is he working now in the citadel? And and their answer to the question is, he didn't get anything. Not even a cost of living increase. The man didn't get anything for saving the life of your king. You know, you think about it. Um, Sometimes a believer's vindication doesn't wait until the believer's death. Sometimes it comes on Thursday. And that's kind of what happens here. His vindication comes early and, and God loves to do that at times in our lives as we faithfully follow him because he wants to give you and me a peek, and the world that's watching a peak of the kingdom that's coming. The, the kingdom that's marked by the age to come, right? So that it spills over and you see a glimpse of the kingdom God is gonna set up in the new creation where private integrity is publicly honored. And that's what they're gonna see when Mordecai is paraded through the streets, right? Here in Esther chapter six, what's going on? Mordecai is sleeping and God is preparing his vindication and it won't even wait till Thursday. It's coming tomorrow. You're gonna wake up and it's gonna be a whole new day for you, Mordecai. You're gonna be wearing clothes you never imagined you'd be wearing. His vindication shows up. What do we learn about the Christian life? The rhythm of the Christian life is sowing, then sleeping. I say sowing than sleeping because the reaping is in God's hands, right? We, we don't control the harvest. We don't control the outcome. The harvest is in God's hands. If I could just stop here and just talk to those of you who have served Jesus on the field of mission. And maybe, you know, you come back in your stateside and there's perhaps a sense of discouragement. You know, we, we invested so much of our lives, we went all in. We shared the gospel, we met people, we prayed so hard and yet we saw so little yield. So few people come to faith And Jesus. Friends, if you have served on the field and you have seen little fruit, you've been faithful. You sowed while you worked, you worked while it was day and there's a time to rest and trust God with outcomes. You've been faithful. You've done exactly what you were supposed to do and Sabbath is exactly what you should do now. It's just as important as our labor. You think about the yield of the seeds that we faithfully sow in parenting. How much of that yield are we going to see in our life? Who knows? There's no guarantee we're gonna see a certain necessary yield. So what do we do? Keep sowing. And when it's time to go to bed, get some rest. (laughs) Because God can work while you're sleeping. God is not at rest. God does not slumber or sleep. You know, Jesus talked about his kingdom in this way. He says in Mark chapter four, verse 26, the kingdom of God is like this, he said, a man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know How? It's the mystery of what happens in the farmer's life when the farmer goes to sleep. The farmer's got a work day in front of him and he sows the seed as broadly as he possibly can and then he goes to bed and he wakes up and maybe there's fruit and he says, where'd all this come from? Because at night, God was working, God was bringing forth the yield, right? Mordecai and Esther, they have not been passive They've been active, they have sowed, they have spoken up, they have been faithful to work while it's day. Chapter five, they talked when it was time to talk. They, they got in there, they, they risked, they invested, they sacrificed, and then this theology of rest informs them that you're gonna have to sleep at some point, you know that? Esther, Mordecai, you were faithful today. Put your head on the pillow and go to bed. Let's see what God does tomorrow morning. It's time to rest. And while they're sleeping, God is working And how is God working? In one way, ironically, he's keeping a couple of other people awake with him. This is the strangest lock-in in in world history. God on high, Xerxes and Haman are gonna be up. They're gonna pull an all-nighter together, the three of them, and he's keeping all three of these awake. No rest for the king, no rest for the wicked. So two people were up all night, with God, the king and Haman. And we know what Haman was doing, right? He was, uh, he was building the gallows. His wife and friends said, here's what you do with the Mordecai problem, you build a gallows. And you build it nice and high so everybody sees the most foolish man in the world hanging high tomorrow. You build that gallows tonight. You get permission in the morning from the king. You tell the king we got a problem person. You don't even have to name him. Tell the king you got a problem person. What did he do last time? Signet ring. Go do what you need to do, right? that's, That's how this played out last time. So he is thrilled. He stays awake all night. He's supervising the project. The gallows go up 75, you talk about extra, 75 feet tall gallows, and it's all done. And you can imagine the sense of haste and eagerness as Haman is on his way to the palace. Right, you back up into chapter 5, and you find out how did all this happen. Right, Well, Esther had an opportunity, and some of us were wanting to yell at Esther and say, you don't know what we know, because if you don't talk to the king tonight about what Haman has done, Mordecai's going to die in the morning. She doesn't know that. She doesn't know there's a threat looming over Mordecai's head when, she's, when she determines, for whatever reasons, in the providence of God, she determines, tonight's not the night. I don't think I'm supposed to do this tonight. Let's call another night. I called Haman and the king here tonight. We had a wonderful meal and then I asked them, can we come back tomorrow night and I wanna do this again? And what does Haman do at the end of chapter five? Haman leaves that party at Esther's place. And he is bragging to his friends. I mean, it's late at night and he calls. He Zeresh, come in here. Bring all our friends over here. And I'm going to tell them all the things that I experienced. How verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11, look down. How the king honored him and promoted him in rank over everybody. And then chapter 5, verse 12. And Queen Esther invited, you see those words, no one but me to join the king. And she wants me of all people to come back Tomorrow night, and the story again—it's written with satire. Satire is humor with an edge. It is, it is humor that exposes foolishness. Because there, right after he's telling them how great and awesome he is to get to be invited in such places and rub shoulders with such people, he moves from bragging to whining, and he's like Mordecai is living rent free. In this man's mind, right? And Mordecai's just ruining his day. And he says, If I could just get rid of Mordecai. And they said, Well, do it. Do it. Stay awake tonight. Get yourself a construction crew, build the gallows, and get permission to finish him in the morning. And that's what they did all night. Haman was awake all night. And so, first thing in the morning, Eager Beaver, he is walking to the palace, he is whistling on his way to the palace, another one bites the dust is probably the song that he's whistling on his way to the palace, and the, but the timing doesn't favor him. <laughs> Let's say it's five minutes to seven as he's whistling his way to the palace. Well, at six minutes to seven, we hear what's going on inside the room with the king and the king says, what honor has been given to Mordecai for this act? Six minutes before seven, they say, nothing has been done for him. And that's when they hear just outside at five minutes to seven, you hear somebody whistling outside the window. And what does the king say inside? He says, who's in the court? (laughs) It's just delicious irony, right? The king asked who's in the court and looked down, Verse four, Haman was just entering the outer court to the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. So they say, it's Haman who's outside. And the king says, basically, perfect. Haman's thrown me great parties. So Haman's gonna be able to come up with a great plan to throw a party for the one the king wants to honor. And even the way that the question is worded is providential, isn't it? Look at verse five, Haman... What should be done for the man the king wants to honor? And Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? So now he has an opportunity, doesn't he? He he would, Haman would not be so audacious to say, so king, here's what I think you should do for me. Take your crown off and put it on me. Take the king's robes from the king's master closet Put them on me. Give me the king's horse. Ride me through the city and have one of your noble officials sing my praises down all the streets in Susa. But no, since this is hypothetical, Haman can say, okay, well, hypothetically, I think this is what you should do. If you want to really do do it up to the nines, here's what you would do. Look at verse (laughs) 8. Have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn, and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. Parade him on the horse through the city square, and call out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Verse 10 the king told Haman, notice the language, how long it takes to get to the name. Hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> I mean, the air has just been sucked out of the room, right? Do all of that for Mordecai the Jew. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. And what do we learn? We learned something here about the madness of self-exaltation. The insanity of self exaltation. You know, throughout this whole story in the book of Esther, Haman stands as a hyperlink, right? He is a representation, the embodiment of those who defy the Lord and his people. That's Haman. He is a living, breathing representation of the ones who oppose God and his people. You know, we sing a song here at Brook Hills that asks a number of questions and then it provides the answer at the end. And and the questions that it asks are pretty awesome. Who else commands all the host of heaven? Who else can make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? And then the answer comes, only a holy God. Haman didn't get the memo. Haman never sang the song. Haman never heard the song. Haman never met the Holy One, but he's about to. Because God is working providentially, sliding his hand into the glove of history. You know, the Old Testament, without without removing any of the wonders of God's mercy that pop in the Old Testament as well, the Old Testament has this beautiful way of getting a message across, which the, the ancient believers just considered to be Wisdom 101, and what was Wisdom 101 in the Old Testament, it is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A wise life is on your knees before the Lord, in humility before the Lord. A stupid life is exalting yourself in the presence of God and thinking that you can dance with him. Haman's sleepless night is a powerful statement about the futility of denying the Lord, dismissing the Lord, rejecting the Lord, opposing the Lord. We see the madness of self-exaltation. And then there's this incredible reversal, right? Because after Haman says, if the king, if you wanna do this right, here's six things, he's got this ready list. It's almost like he had already imagined, you know, if the king ever asks, these are the six things that I want the most. He's got this list of six things. If you really want to do this right, king, do these six things. And then the king says, don't leave out anything. All six things, do it for Mordecai. And then look at verse 11. The surprising reversal. So Haman took the garment and the horse. Haman clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor Mordecai looked so different just yesterday. The difference one night of sleep made in this man's life. He looked so humble. He looked so impoverished. He looked so helpless just yesterday. And how different he looks today. He's got the king's crown. He's got the king's robe. He's riding the king's horse. And somebody's, at, he's being paraded through the streets. As he's paraded through the streets, even his enemies, Mordecai's enemies, have to publicly acknowledge at repeated intervals, behold the one in whom the king is pleased. Doesn't that hearken to something that we'll read in the future further on into the pages of the Bible, right, where where history is running, history is running to this moment that's described in Philippians chapter two where the one who humbled himself is now highly exalted and every knee bows in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confesses. It's not just the world genuflecting pay and homage to the greatness of God. It is the world saying it. Every tongue will confess, some through their teeth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the one with whom the king is well pleased. You know, everywhere we look in Scripture, something reminds us that the gospel is true. All of it. Something reminds us that our relationship with God was broken back there somewhere. Something went terribly wrong back there and and we were separated. Humanity was separated from a holy God and there was only one way back and the way was provided by God sending a mediator, his own son, the eternal son of God who became man. Jesus Christ enters this world and he is rejected and humiliated and then he goes to the cross and he hangs on the cross in our place and then he rises again From the dead. But the king in his incarnation, he laid aside his privileges. He didn't look like much, but check him out after his resurrection. No rest for the king, no rest for the wicked. Third, and the God who gives us rest. Esther 6, in a sentence, might go something like this Esther and Mordecai go to sleep, and God goes to work. I almost titled this message, God of the Night Shift, because God takes the night shift. He says, y'all go to bed, I'm going to stay up a while, and I'm going to keep a couple of people up with me, and it's going to make all the difference when you wake up tomorrow morning, because I'm going to do a lot of stuff tonight while you're sleeping. While the heroes are out cold, I'm going to do something amazing. The winds are going to change. Last week, Pastor Nate Farrow, uh, he quoted from Psalm 121, and, and that... Text is so fitting and appropriate again here this morning because we learned something about God in Psalm 121 and it's this, Psalm 121, verse three and four. He, God, will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber, so he won't slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. What's the upshot of Esther 6 when it lands in the heart and soul of someone who follows Jesus, it's basically this, Christian friend here in the room this morning, you can rest. God is awake. You can rest. God will stay awake. The protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. You think about it, the book of Esther, it's a story that was memorized by the people of God over the centuries I mean, they told this story verbatim, these exact words with all their satire-laden detail. It was told just this way with groggers and shakers and boos and hisses and Haman's triangular ears represented in the cookies that they ate every year at the Feast of Purim, right? The whole thing, they did it up. They did not want to forget all all the glorious, wonderful stuff that's going on in this story. And what was the effect it was meant to have on God's people, and I think the effect is this. In essence, the book of Esther as a whole is a metaphorical bedtime story. It is God saying to his people, lay down, lay down, and as they drift off to sleep, God is telling them about the night he stayed awake and made the two most powerful people in the world stay awake with him and all the outcomes were changed by seven o'clock the next morning. What a difference a night makes. Right, who, who could have predicted these outcomes last night at 10 o'clock when Haman is boasting, throwing his weight around, saying, the, yes, the, the queen wants me back tomorrow night, right? And his brag-fest and his construction project and all that's going on just last night. And then who could have predicted that that same Haman would dress Mordecai up, would, would carry him down the streets and sing Mordecai's honor in the city square. Nobody's laying odds that that's ever going to happen just last night, but that whole thing turned while they were sleeping. Who could have predicted that the very people who told Haman to build the gallows, his wife and the friends, build a gallows, take care of your problem, you'd be, you'd be dead by morning. Take care of your problem. Who could have predicted those very people? Look at the end of our passage in verse 13, chapter 6. Those same people, Zeresh and the friends, would say these words. Haman, you've begun to fall before him. You won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. (laughs) While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. Doesn't that language of here come the eunuchs and they sweep him away, doesn't it suggest to us that Haman's no longer calling the shots? Two eunuchs came and bundled him away, and he looked pretty sour. Bundled him away to the feast he was super excited about last night, but he doesn't look excited anymore because the winds have changed. You know, what's the announcement of the Advent hymn about the effect of the incarnation on those who believe? It says, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. Earlier, I mentioned Psalm three and Psalm 62 and Psalm 127, you can throw Psalm 92 in there, a number of other Psalms as well, but in Psalm 62, I love it because David is telling his soul, he is preaching the gospel to himself. And he is saying, find rest, my soul, in God alone. Basically what he's saying is, soul, the time to find rest is now, and the place it's found is in God alone. Get your rest and get it in God, because that's the only place you can find it. He is notifying his soul of where rest is found. And I think in a sense, Esther 6 dramatizes Psalm 62. And it becomes the application for us as believers, Christian friend, don't underestimate the wonderful things God can do while you're sleeping, while you're waiting, while you're resting. Let's let's find, actively, let's find rest this week and let's find it in God alone.